Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my good friend Teos Abadia. But Teos, we have a very special mystery guest this week. Can you guess Hello. who that mystery guest is? Uh, it is, I can't think of something clever, but it's okay because it is a per- clever person. It's the incredible, the amazing James Introcaso. I'm cheering for myself now. Uh, you should. You should because you have an incredibly long resume of super awesome things. You're one of the people who, as a freelancer, has done the most 5e work with Wizards of the Coast, but you've done all kinds of amazing work for other companies uh, from Zweihander on. You work at MCDM now. You were one of the architects of Arcadia magazine for MCDM. Uh, it's been amazing reading your editorials. Uh, it feels like I'm back in the days of Dragon and Dungeon Magazine, reading these cool editorials. You clearly have a lot of passion towards what Arcadia has been. And now there are all these changes coming. So welcome to the show, James. Yes, excellent. It is so it's such an honor to be here. So on a podcast that I listen to every week, uh, I, I love to uh, hear you all uh, tell me the latest D&D news. I love when you go in-depth on discussions. I really enjoyed you uh breaking down Spelljammer uh and uh, and the Spelljammer adventure uh was really really fun like this it is an honor to be here but also it is an honor to be among two of some of the the most creative and uh best designers uh that like, we don't we don't talk about it enough on this podcast cuz they're humble individuals um but can we can we just say that of the official Watsi hardcover books, you two are the co-author of the book that has the best and strongest voice of any Watsi book, uh, and that's Acquisitions Incorporated. It's great. Um, so, uh, so I just want to throw that out there that that book is the most fun of the five e books to read. Period, hands down, uh, and nothing can compete. And now Sean will provide a humble reply. I, yes, I will. I, the strongest voice. There's this guy who hangs out in the street corner who just shrieks <laughs> endlessly. He has the strongest voice uh, in our community. So I will take that uh, take that compliment. Uh, and now for Teos' non-humble take, which is thank you, James. Yes, that means you. a lot to me because uh, we, we did. We worked really hard on that aspect of it. And, and I'm really happy what the team did. It wasn't just Sean and I, but... but uh, but thank of course, you. That, that's the, the, uh, great Scott Gray must be shouted out as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, who is who was on this podcast uh, mere episodes ago? I don't know what episode we're currently recording, so I won't say. But it was two from my time of listening. I think. Two yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, uh, for those people out there, uh, I, I'm sure you know who James is because James has been on the show before in various incarnations, and we've talked about the work that MCDM is doing with Arcadia, uh, with Flea Mortals, the monster book that just ended a couple weeks ago, I, I believe, with over $2 million at, on Kickstarter. Uh, so a wonderful monster book with lots of cool stuff. And we are going to discuss all of that and more. We're going to see what information we can drag out of James that he's probably trying to hide, but we're going to trick <laughs> him in, into revealing some of his right. secrets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, channel his inner mat and spill all the beans that's right true and i want to hear all about minions especially because that Mm -hmm. was one thing that uh, sean and i were were talking about some aspect of fourth edition and we just thought you know minions are such an amazing amazingly interesting design uh 
I don't even call it construct, right? It's a, a, an element of design that we've seen in fourth edition, we've seen in other PG, RPGs, and I really want to talk about that as a thing, and then also what MCM specifically is doing with minions and fleet mortals. Mm-hmm. But before we get to that, we're going to get to minions last because that's where we're, we're going to get get into the nitty gritty of game design. But first, Me we want to yes, but first we want to talk a little bit about what you're doing in MCDM right now and what may be coming in the future. So you uh, you hired the amazing Hannah Rose to take over your editorial duties with Arcadia. Uh, so what was that experience like building Arcadia you know, for, from scratch to start with? What, what were you trying to do with it and how do you think it went based on those original goals you had? Yeah. So first of all, it's a, it is a huge get for us that Hannah has uh, taken over Arcadia um, because she's a, a very accomplished editor, designer, uh, art director, project lead. She's done so many things in this industry and she's really, really good. Um, and, uh, and she's actually been working as an editor on Arcadia since issue one. Um, and so she, it was really a, a no brainer. It was like, if Hannah wants this job, it is hers. Uh, and lucky for us, she did. Um, the Arcadia is actually the brainchild of Matt and our art director, Jason Hasenauer. Um, they were looking through the art and arcana book one day, uh, with, uh, a, woman named Anna who uh, no longer works at MCDM but did at the time and she said why is no one making these magazines anymore Dungeon and Dragon magazine look at all this beautiful art that was in it and there was sort of this like oh well maybe we could do that right and the uh, right at at the time um, they were like we have this Patreon to support our actual plays but we're not really doing much with it maybe we could create some sort of magazine, get more people invested in our Patreon and put this out there. Um, And it was also a way for MCM. We have all these other projects we want to work on. And it was a way for us to find authors and artists that we wanted to work with. And so one of the big missions of Arcadia is um, it's very author and artist forward, right? So like when we contact people to make a cover for Arcadia, we sort of let them do whatever they want within the bounds of a fantasy, you know, magical world. Um, They can draw anything Uh, and it doesn't have to relate to the content of that issue. It just needs to be a cool cover, which is similar to the way Dungeon and Dragon magazine did a lot of their issues. Um, And then for authors, we solicit pitches, but as long as they're actionable things that, can be done in fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons, you know, new monsters, spells, adventures, rules, uh, advice for world building, things like that. Um, we will consider it right for the magazine. And then the author, because it's their name on the byline, they really have the final say about what goes into that article. We play test everything. We do that. So that's really what it was. It was like, this is a place where people can come and be really creative and have the Port of a company like MCDM, uh, and it will also aid us in that we will find people, and obviously financially it helps us too because people are subscribed to our Patreon now and buying the magazine on our store and stuff like that. So, and it's been really successful so far. Um, we have a, a ton of patrons uh, who support us. We've managed to have it come out every month um, f- since issue four. We took a break between three and four, a one month break, um, but we haven't taken a break since, and we've managed to put it out and i think issue 17 just came out uh this past month um so an 18 is is on schedule so uh 
yeah, it's it's wild. It's about three or four articles every issue. Um, usually ends up being between thirty and forty pages each issue. That's great. I mean, I'm a subscriber, and I love the creativity that's in it. I I, I think it's done an amazing job of capturing that old school spirit of sort of unexpected excitement. You open up an issue and it hits you with this great cover art. And then there's this neat, inspiring letter to the editor. And then it's just, it could be anything, but it's something fun, something that, that will be exciting to read and look at. And that's, that's quite the achievement. Yeah, I think a big thing that we want to be able to do is I, I remember, right, reading Dungeon and Dragon magazine and getting a lot of great ideas as a GM or as a player, even if I wasn't going to use that material as written. It was like, oh, I'm, it felt like playing D&D, reading that stuff because it was so cool and interesting. And so that's one of the things we want to capture is we want to make it stuff that people can use and people do use a lot of it at their table. But we also just want to make it a fun magazine to read, right? That, that hey, you can pick this up and read it and you'll look forward to it every month because there's going to be something surprising something fun in there something that you can use or might inspire another idea for you um and uh, i feel like we've been you know more or less hitting that mark with everything uh, and it's it's honestly it's a ton of work the authors make a ton of revisions on their articles it goes through two rounds of play testing our editors work really hard on every article the artists work really hard the art team so like everybody works super super hard to get this into a, a place um, where we can put out this this magazine and it's usually you know issues sometimes take five or six months to put together so we're generally working on you know many at once <laughs> to get it done yeah it's it's business wise it's interesting because you know for those of us who have been around a while and even more recently with the digital versions dragon and dungeon have been such an important part of the history of the game and yeah. people were waiting to see what wizards would do with that and they didn't do much with it uh and and i don't know if they didn't think uh, financially it would be worth it if it was too much work uh, but it's great that the hobby has grown to the point where third party people can can do the, the thing and see the audience response be as great as it is yeah it, it really is wonderful one of the best things for me is right we find a lot of authors um, you know, we we go to the DMs Guild. Um, I uh, would often uh, reach out to folks like um, Lisa Penrose and Ashley Warren, who who have this history of like identifying and finding new writers and helping them uh, hone their craft in in different ways. Um, you know, Lisa through the DMs Guild, Ashley through the uh, storytelling collective workshop, and um, and and so going to those places, right, to find people uh, doing research on our own to see who who's out there, um, uh, uh, Ajit George, who I think you had on the show a little while ago, um, is a great resource in, uh, in recommending people to us. And so all of that helps us find some people uh, who, you know, it, it's difficult. There's a lot of people putting content out there. Adventurers League is another great avenue to, to look for, um, talking to Sean and Teos. Uh, so all of these things. But then when those writers are in Arcadia, it gives them enough exposure that then we see other companies starting to work with them after that too, right? So before that, they were mostly putting out things on their own. Uh, we work with them and then, they, you know, other companies do. Like this guy, Mike Shea, um, nobody had worked with him before. And then he uh, had an article in Arcadia and now it's just blown up. Just yeah. blown up. I haven't heard of him, but, uh, you know, if he has he a blog site, maybe you can, you know, 
share that. That's true. Yeah, he he'd much rather talk about Duke basketball than D and D. Oh yeah, so Cute. oh yeah, that guy who loves basketball. I know him. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, but you know, so and that's the other thing is it's not always up and coming writers. Um, sometimes it's people like Mike Shea or Scott Gray, uh, who has has been in our pages too, right? So we try to work with a, a bunch of different people, um, and hope that like some of the uh sort of people who have a, have built up a name for themselves will help us bring in an audience so that we can meet some people who don't have as big a name for themselves and that kind of thing um, and, and it's great some of the ideas that come in arcadia are things that i never would have thought of right and that's the joy is then i get to to work on them of course i'm not doing that now hannah has now uh taken that over so it's cool well that brings to mind the question now that hannah is handling that what are you focusing on uh, so, uh, MCDM is growing what we do, right? We want to do more stuff. And so that's one reason why we, we brought on Hannah was, uh, I, I had to take some stuff off of my plate. Um, and so Hannah's taken over Arcadia and she's also going to help us with a lot of the other projects we have, uh, coming forth. Um, so right now we have a big book of monsters that we just kickstarted, um, and it's called Flea Mortals. Um, and the idea is we're making a monster book that you could use to replace your core monster book. You could use it to replace the monster manual if you want to, or you could use it to supplement the monster manual. I'm not your dad. Do whatever you want. Um, but, uh, but you know, there's going to be uh, new takes on classic creatures in there. Uh, goblins and orcs and hobgoblins and, uh, you know, uh, our version of a floating eye beast that shoots lasers or a, our version of squid people is in there and that sort of thing but then there will also be a bunch of new monsters that are going to be in there too um so uh yeah there's going to be a lot of uh of fun stuff um great designers working on that uh one guy uh named teos abadia uh is uh is signed up uh we we've got him uh making some cool stuff for us and then you know a whole bunch of other designers who we worked with um in arcadia and and found in other places for being famous for making monsters um so yeah it's uh it's exciting uh and so that's a big chunk of my time another big chunk of my time is uh we put out custom classes and so right now we're working on a custom class called the talent which is our version of the scion um and that's coming out hopefully before the end of the year and you'll see that it's sort of a different system for spell casting instead of spell slots it's like a push your luck uh, system where you roll to see if you manifest your power you always do manifest your power when you try but you roll to see do you take on strain which is this resource that can give you debilitating effects as you gain it um think uh, uh, like exhaustion but l- exhaustion light uh, <laughs> i guess would be the way to put it right the effects are not as severe uh at least to start when you build them all up over time they might be and you can actually die from casting spells which is kind of cool i love it so yeah yeah that's really cool um and and you had the ill rigor class before that that's really neat yeah yeah are we gonna see like a book of classes i mean it's gonna all come together maybe Uh, the the thing that i would say is um there's lots of stuff we want to do uh there's a few more classes we want to do which matt has talked about on stream so i feel safe talking about the summoner which actually uses our minion rules you're a character who's summoning 
minions, right? Um, maybe depending on your subclass, undead or infernal or, or beasts or whatever it may be, right? Plants. Um, uh, there's an operator class, which is like you're a big mech driver, right? You, you have like a magical powered suit of armor that you you drive around and things like that. Um, so we want to create those. And then from there, maybe a book of classes. Uh, maybe not. Uh, we're, we're still figuring it out. <laughs> So this that brings to mind a question that comes back to Flea Mortals, which is how much in your design or in your vision uh, for MD, MCDM as a whole or for just yourself is building on what 5e has already done versus making it a new way to play 5e? Huh. That's a, that is a great question. So Matt... Um, definitely has a preferred way to play 5e, right? And I think w- one of the things that I remember when 5e came out, right? And this is before a lot of new people came. I'm talking Gen Con 2014. It's there. We're, you know, Watsy is still going to Gen Con, right? Um, and and we're all there checking it out, seeing what's going on. We, we may not know each other yet, but we, I think we were all at Gen Con that year. Um, and, yep. uh, and so... Uh, when that was happening, I remember somebody said 5e is great because it's every every D&D player's second favorite edition of the game, right? And and like I do think that in some ways that was kind of the design goal, right? It was going to be the addition to unite all players. It was going to uh, do all the things that anybody who played D&D wanted it to do. And I think it does all of those things uh, like really well. Right, so it uh, it can you can use it as a dungeon crawler if you want to. You can use it to tell a heroic fantasy story if you want to. Um, you can use it for fun tactical combat. You can have a little bit more of a a laid back role playing game with theater of the mind combat. Right, all that kind of stuff. You have a lot of options within Five E. Now, of course, Five E is many people's favorite edition of the game because we have all these people who have never played anything else. Um, but I think if you were to talk to Matt Colville. Uh, if, uh, and, and to me, like we both really like fourth edition quite a bit. Um, and I think we both wish that there were some more, and now listen, before everybody gets on, on our cases, <laughs> 4e is not a perfect game. Uh, there's a lot going on and it's long in the tooth. If you play it now, there, it's age, uh, and, and a lot of the things that, um, could have been better about it show, um, but I think there are some things that it's like, oh, it would be great to kind of bring this back in. And 5e allows you to do that because it's so customizable, right? And I think that's one of its goals. It wants you to be able to do things like this. Um, and so uh, we're, we both like a little bit more of a tactical game when it comes to combat. Um, and so we both like to play on a grid, right? Um, and we think that when you play on a grid, you've probably got some more options available to you. And so our monsters, I would say, are more grid-focused. You can use them in Theater of the Mind, but they're doing things like, um, you know, creating difficult terrain, uh, moving you five feet, that sort of thing, that I think it's easier to track on a grid, attacking each creature within five feet. It's a big thing that our minions do. Um, So I think, uh, you know, it's that, it's bringing back, uh, the the concept and idea of minions, which I do think Five E sort of has um, already, um, but yeah. So we're I would say we're building on top of it to create us a, a more tactical uh, and fun experience uh, as we see it with monsters. I know that's not everybody's cup of tea. No, it's it's cool. I mean, I love it for sure. Um, 
it it feels like you like MCDM uh, is different than most companies, and that if I look at most companies that are creating five E content, they are doing things that um, it might be their own take on, say, a world or class design or something like that. But it's it's like another option. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I look at what MCDM does, it feels like they are fine tuning five E, like you are fine tuning five E, and uh, and. Thank you. Good. <laughs> and, um, thank you. Uh, are you going to do that to other aspects? If you're doing it for for monsters now, are you going to fine tune? Uh, Matt had a le- hilarious comment about fine tuning treasure, but uh, uh, magic <laughs> items. But uh, but you know, are are you looking at fine tuning classes like you know ancestry? Yeah. Any other I, aspects? Yeah, I think so. Right. Like we we'd love to be able to to fine tune some classes and uh we'd love to be able to fine tune rewards right that's a, we talk about rewards a lot cuz man had a very popular video about about rewards and i think uh i uh, we struggle with like at what point are we creating a new game right and and that's kind of hard to tell and it's it's also in the eye of the gamer um but uh and so i think part of it is like where does where do we say and where do we draw the line and say like this is as much as we can do and right now we're doing that with flea mortals there was a meeting matt and i had where we were like okay if we could redesign the stat block what would we do and it was like we would you know we would throw out feet and maybe refer to squares and we would uh you know uh create some more keyword terms so that we could shorten up the way things are put in stat blocks to lose some of the more natural language and by the end of it it was like well yeah but then this is very frustrating to a 5e dm right because you're picking up a 5e book because you want to be able to run those monsters, not because you want to learn a whole new way of running monsters. And so it's sort of like we have to pick and choose what is most important to us to change. So like, you know, we moved challenge rating to the top right corner of the stat block. Uh, and that was a change that people were like, whoa, this is great. Like, it's easier to find the challenge rating for a creature, right? And it's like, okay, so that was a good change. Um, you know, we uh, codified some language around like, save ends at the end of turn instead of saying you can repeat this saving throw at the end of your turn ending the condition on a success right like that that sort of thing so some of those things were codifying and some of those things were not because we want like we're still using feet and not squares for instance yeah yeah i it's an interesting uh it's an interesting concept to try to fine tune something because what fine tuning does is basically limit the market, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you're you're taking a game that's that's big that, and then you're saying, okay, I, we want to do something for this small group of people, which may have been very hard to do in four E or at the beginning yeah. of five E, but now the audience is so large that there is enough of an audience to do these niche things uh, that will appreciate it, that will use it, and that will buy it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because we, you know, like some of the things we talk about are like, well, should now, should Arcadia 
be using the same stat block format we're using in Flea Mortals. And it's like, well, maybe not, because Flea Mortals comes with a, a you know, an introduction that explains what we've changed and why. Uh, and do we want to put that introduction in every issue of Arcadia? Because then if, you, if you're just picking up an issue because you're like, hey, my friend Teos wrote this great article, right? Sean Merwin is a, is a headliner in this issue of Arcadia. Um, and, and I want that Sean article. Uh, it's going to be real confusing to you if all of a sudden there's this new stat block with new language. And so you're, you're right. It absolutely limits the market. So it's like, well, no, for... For Arcadia, at least for now, maybe that'll change when Plea Mortals comes out, right? Um, but for now, that's going to follow the standard stat block format that we all know and love from 5e. Yeah. I feel that a bit with uh, MCDM's uh, two kind of kingdom books where kingdoms or strongholds, there mm-hmm. are these really neat subsystems, but you, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, you kind of have to explain it each time, and that makes it hard to then just have content for it yeah it does it does right and that's and and that's one reason why it's like well are we you know i don't know uh, are we better off creating our own game right because then we we know what all the content for it is right and we can say okay here this works with everything but there's a big broad D D fan base out there and and they love it and we love D D. and so you know there's there's a lot of questions in terms of like how much to change, how much to fine tune, right? And, and how much to make different. And, and that's the other thing is we like D&D. D&D has a really smart team of designers who's been working hard on that game for years. Uh, and so, uh, and their goals are different than ours. But I think everybody wants to make a good game that everybody wants to yeah. play, right? And so it behooves us to, to say, okay, well, why did they do this? And di- they did it for X reason, and we want to accomplish Y, so we're going to change it. Or, oh, they did for X reason, and we also want X reason to happen, so we're just going to follow that suit, right? Because it's the same game, and there's an open game license, and we'll, we'll do that. So, uh, you know, I think it's picking and choosing what we want to change for the right reason and making sure, you know, I, I don't have any inside info at WotC, uh, but it, it, I think they're pretty open about their design process. Uh, and so you can often point to, like, okay, you did this for this reason, and we want to do this for a different reason, and that's fine. So it's great. Yeah, I, you know, something I was looking at the other day, I was noticing that the Dungeon Master's Guide has rules for ships traveling on the water. Mm-hmm. Ghost of Saltmarsh has rules, which you helped write, uh, and it has statistics for those ships, mm-hmm. and the speeds are different, which I thought was really interesting, and. None of that is open gaming material. Yeah. So whenever anybody deals with ships, if you want to try to tie into those systems, you kind of need to recreate it. And when even Wizards doesn't have one reality, it's like, well, what, you know, like you can't even point to something. You're not supposed (laughs) to name books. So it's like, you can't say, look in Ghosts of Saltmarsh or look in the DMG. It's really a fascinating thing, which, which I can appreciate then what MCDM must do when it's trying to fix a subsystem or play off of one and you can't even refer to it and it isn't just one thing, boy, that makes it really complex. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, we, we work with a lot of authors who have only ever published on the DMs Guild, right? And so teaching them sort of the ins and outs of like, 
well, we can do this, but we can't do that because we're we're dealing with the open gaming license now is a uh, is an interesting hurdle. Sean, I, I'm sure you probably see that a lot in, in the work that you're doing too. Yeah, it's like, I know you want to use this spell. I know you do, but we can't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's to the point now where I'm reviewing, developing, or editing something. I'm like, nope, nope. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, that spell is not, you know, Rory's telepathic bond anymore. It's just telepathic bond. It's not... Yeah you know <laughs> yeah it's and, arcane hand yeah there are a couple of monsters here. exactly there are a couple of monsters that that i see on projects people will suggest these monsters over and over again and they're not an, in, in the basic rules and it's like no no you can't you can't use those i know we, we all want to we really feel like they should be in the basic rules but they are not you can't use them yeah, and there's a there's an extra layer of complexity, right? Because it's like we can't use mind flares, period, full stop. Those are wizards IP. Cyclops doesn't have a stat block in the you know the the system reference rule. document, but you could create your own Cyclops because Wizards of the Coast doesn't own the idea of a Cyclops, right? And so it's there are all these little nuances that are frustrating uh, to learn as a as a new writer um you know and then also right like we have our own internal idiosyncrasies which i'm sure are frustrating to deal with for, for freelancers where it's like well yes people do that but at mcdm we do it differently for whatever cockamamie reason my ego <laughs> probably uh you know we we do something differently so um but it is uh it is fun to be able to get in there and to fine-tune the game and one of the things that we have right is a really good community of testers um who are they play 5e you know sometimes four or five times a week uh and so we get some you know they they know the game inside and out and we get some really good feedback when we change something when we put it in front of them if we like the first reaction is i've always wanted somebody to do this right we're like ah yes okay we're we're on the right track um and if the reaction is why who cares this is already works great um it's like oh okay well back to the drawing board then you know so yeah i had a group of play testers like that in the 4e days for the ashes of athos oh, adventures yeah. and they were i mean i owe them so much because it's like you you grow to you know you can count on them you give them something you know they'll bring expertise to it they'll bring constructive feedback to it uh they're doing everything they, they, like they believe in it being a better product and that's invaluable. It's great. I, I've been really impressed by the playtesters that MCDM has. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent, right. That, and, and when you have games that are deep, like 5e and 4e and D and D in general, it, it, no one person can hold all of the information out there in their head. Right. And so it's really good to have somebody who can say, well, this talent class feature that kicks in at seventh level steps on the 18th level feature of a ranger, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah. um, that's really a problem with the ranger, though, isn't it? <laughs> it's always a problem with the ranger. That's right. So, in, in Flea Mortals, what other than minions, which we will go into later, what were some of the new things that you added to monsters that uh, make it? you know, interesting to, for DMs to, to grapple with. Oh yeah. So we have, um, uh, uh, 
three sort of big things that we're doing in addition to minions. Um, the first is action-oriented creatures, which is really our take on legendary creatures. Um, uh, essentially, instead of three legendary actions, a creature has a reaction and a bonus action that they can use um, every round. And then they have villain actions, which are once per bit three villain actions, very flavorful once per encounter type abilities that um, do some really impactful things. Uh, and so, you know, that, that sort of evens out then having the bonus action, the reaction in your three villain actions makes up for the fact that they don't have legendary actions. Um, and then we have companions, um, which are creatures like the hellhounds and owlbears and uh, uh, wargs and stuff like that, that, there is a companion version um, and there are rules for that companion that they can adventure alongside you. Uh, they're usually controlled by a player. They build up ferocity, which is this resource that they get during combat that they can then spend to do cool stuff. Um, the more ferocity you have, the cooler the thing you can do. But, uh-oh, you build up too, fero- too much ferocity, uh, your companion goes buck wild and it attacks whoever is closest to them, which is probably you, right? Um, buck wild is written in the rules, right? It is. It's a, yeah, it's called going buck wild and uh, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's great. Uh, the, uh, it's, it's actually called entering a rampage uh, is, is what we call it. Um, and then retainers, which you probably, if you have strongholds and followers, the first book we put out, um, retainers are, are like animal companions but they're people and they don't build up ferocity um so you know they're they're sidekick heroes basically that uh adventure alongside you uh new updated rules for companions uh or for uh retainers that we have there and then uh the other thing that we wanted to do was monsters that you fight a lot like um goblins hobgoblins uh humans uh, elves dwarves that sort of thing we wanted to offer uh, a, a smattering of different um, uh, versions of of those things, right? So, like, we have like ten different goblins that you can use, not just two. Uh, and so that's that's one of the things that we really want to offer. And they all sort of work together. They have abilities that synergize pretty well. Um, and so it makes it fun because you can use a group of goblins, or you can say. I'm going to pull a goblin from here. I'm going to pull a human from here. And I'm going to pull a bugbear from here and an elf from here and build like a rival adventuring party or a band of misfit thieves or whatever it may be to take on the party as well. Um, so, yeah. And we brought back creature roles from 4E, right? The idea that you might have artillery or a soldier or a brute to help you build an encounter and give you an idea of what these creatures can do. Uh, we also have those roles are back. Can you share from a design standpoint why you wanted to bring back roles? Like, what is it that a role lets you do as a, as a designer? So as a designer, it helps us, uh, uh, right? There's no hard and fast rule about like an artillery must shoot uh, 120 feet and do X number of damage per level or, or anything like that. Um, but uh, we have general guidelines, right? So you might see there are some creatures that sort of maybe blur the line a little bit that it's like, oh, this thing is pretty tough, but it also has some controllery abilities. So we went with controller because we think it fits that role best in combat. But yes, it is also a brute. Um, and so it does a couple of different things. One, it helps the designer because uh, when we put out the the call for creatures, we can say, hey, can you make you know these creatures and be sure to include 
this, this, and this. And then the designer has leeway within that space, right? To say, okay, it's going to be a soldier, but how does it soldier, right? And uh, they go about uh, creating that. Um, the same thing is true for encounter building. It makes encounter building for the GM easier. So from our perspective, right? Like I loved in fourth edition that I could sit down and say, I'm going to build an encounter with these. Oh, they're all artillery. You know what? We should probably get some brutes and soldiers in there to to give the artillery a front line, right? So there's this shorthand that develops as you're building encounters uh, for uh, like, hey, the artillery are great at range. They're not going to be great at melee. And so we, we want to make sure there are people great at melee to protect them and provide a more dynamic encounter. Um, and so it helps GMs build those things without having to delve super deep into the stat block before they do. Um, and the other thing from a design perspective is it sort of helps us save on word count in that if you want to provide tactical advice, which we do, right, we can say, here's how to run in a, like artillery without saying every artillery now needs the same repeated, like they hang in the back, they fire, and then when the heroes get close, they run away, right? Like now we can just say that. And then if that art particular artillery is different, we can talk about that in their entry, right? Um, so it saves space and, and word count for us too. That's cool. Before we move on to min Minion specifically, if people failed to back Flea Mortals, but they want to get in on the action, where can sure. they do that? Sure, if you failed to back or uh, if you chose not to back because you don't like Kickstarter, which is a very understandable thing, um, you can now uh, pre-order through BackerKit, um, uh, which uh, if you head on over to uh, the MCDM website, if you Google Flea Mortals, it'll come up. But I think if you also go to mcdm.gg uh, slash Flea Mortals, uh, okay. I believe the Kickstarter comes up as well. Um, so I'm checking that right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a, that's another way that, that you can do that is, um, so yeah, there's a, and the show notes for this episode, mm -hmm. uh, you can probably find a link yep. to the Kickstarter. Um, so, uh, so yeah, yeah, but that's, uh, that's where you can go and you can back through backer kit that way and, uh, and pick up a, a, a copy. If you back through backer kit, um, we are putting out monsters in packets, right? Before they're published, we're putting out like the like, hey, here's the close to done version of these monsters because it's going to take us a while before you get the full book. Mm -hmm. We want people to be able to start playing with this stuff now. Um, so those people will get packets as they come out. There's also a free preview with goblins and some other cool monsters in it that you can check out uh, on the Kickstarter site. All right, there you go. So let's dive into minions. Uh you have done a video on this, at least one video on this. You've put out samples. Uh, so tell us about your love of Minions, where it started, and, uh, and how it manifested in this new book. And these are yellow creatures that uh, started in the Arctic, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, they, they're always found uh, serving Gru or some mm. other higher master. Uh, a T-Rex perhaps, or, or that kind of thing. Um, yeah, no. So these are, uh, these are uh, my first blush with minions, right? Was fourth edition minions, um, which were creatures that had one hit point. Uh, and they, so they went down in one hit and it fulfilled this fantasy that a lot of players have of like being Legolas and, you know, shooting a bunch of uh, creatures down at once on your turn or, uh, you know, uh, doing a, 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 like a cleave maneuver where you're just, 
cutting your way through a bunch of zombies or skeletons or whatever it may be. Um, and, uh, and it also allowed then the GM to have like more creatures in a combat, right? Because generally, if you've got more creatures than players, combat's going to go for a while uh, unless they're really like low level or, or fodder or that kind of thing. This created some fodder, but the fodder could still like dish out a decent amount of damage and uh, be effective before they went down. Uh, you know, if you're level eight and you're fighting CR one fourth goblins, um, it's it's almost a slog because you're like, well, I'm just waiting for them to attack me and I'll miss. And then I will kill them one at a time until they're finally running away or dead. Right. Um, minions allow for like, Oh, uh, this is still kind of lethal. Even though these things are going down in one hit. Um, they're essentially all glass cannons for their level. Um, if you're, if you're doing it correctly. Um, so yeah. So you can throw a lot of them uh, together at the at the players and i loved it i loved it as a player um i loved it as a gm because the, i like players the look in their eyes as they were like well i you know i knocked down three things on the first turn of combat it was just great um and other systems have since used them uh and and we're using them before 4e right um savage worlds uh uses minions um the uh uh star wars uh fantasy flight system uh, Genesis uses them. Uh, 13th Age has made uh, uh, amazing use of minions, and each uses them uh, sort of a little differently than the next, but the 4E version was one hit point. Yeah, and, and you've moved away from the one hit point. Can you can you talk about that design choice? <laughs> yeah, so uh, uh, 4E is a different game than 5E, um, <laughs> and 4E uh, did not have as many effects well actually they, they may have had some cool minion killers but they were that was factored into the design because minions were part of the 4e design um but 5e has all of these spells that deal damage automatically right things like magic missile fire shield uh, armor of agathis um you know uh spike growth right um things that are just like constantly dealing damage and then it has spells uh which are less common but still devastating to minions if they had one hit point. Things like sleep, things like color spray, right? Um, those things are just going to break down a minion instantly and turn minion encounters trivial. And like, okay, at, at first level, right? Sleep should lay low many, many minions. At 12th level, when you're fighting 12th level minions, sleep should not do that still, right? You want, you want spellcasters to still have to bust out their bigger spells to take on minions. And so we came up with this idea of the minion trait. So minions have hit points, um, but they have the minion trait. And the minion trait says if you are hit with a successful attack, which normally we need to define like an attack is something that actually requires an attack roll. Magic missile is not an attack, um, uh, despite the fact that it is a very aggressive action that deals damage. <laughs> um, and uh, Or if the creature takes damage as a result of a failed saving throw, so you fail a saving throw against a fireball, a lightning bolt, uh, you know, a, a sacred flame, um, not charm person, because that doesn't deal damage, uh, they die. That's it. They die, right? So it has that one hit effect. But hit points then allow us to account for things like spike growth, like what happens if you take half damage uh, from that fireball, like what happens if uh, the sleep spell is cast. And basically the way that we do hit points for minions, because we found that it used to be we had GMs track them, and that took way too much time at the table. So uh, minions have lower hit points than their counterparts generally. 
So if that failed save, right, for or if that successful save for half damage, the damage still overcomes your hit points, you die, right? Cobalt minion hit with a fireball, you don't even need to roll a save for it. That thing's going down. Um, but uh, anything else um, survives, and you don't need to worry about marking down hit points because the hit points are low enough that something's going to get it eventually, either the minion trade or something else. Whew, so, yeah, so so just to, just to be clear, you're never subtracting hit points from a minion. It's either dead or if it doesn't meet that threshold. So if, if it had 27 hit points and it took 26 hit points from a fireball that it saved against, it would stay up and still have 27 hit points. Correct. Yes, okay. that's that's the way. Now, obviously, it, your mileage may vary as a GM. If you want to track hit points, go right ahead, right? Like, we're, we're not stopping you from doing that. Um, and uh, some people have said that they want to do that, and that's totally fine, right? Um, I don't think it's going to change the balance too much to be able to do that. But again, minions generally have lower hit points, uh, and so a lot of tracking would not be needed even if you did decide to do it. Um, uh, and, and the attack always kills it no matter how much damage it deals. Now, the other thing about minion hit points the reason we have them is uh, there's this idea of like players love to roll damage. Right. And the, and there's like, it's kind of a bummer. You might remember this from 4E you'd critically hit a minion. And then I was like, yeah. Oh, I, but it was a minion. Like it didn't matter. I, all I need to do is hit its AC. So our idea is you roll damage for minions. And if you're making a weapon attack, right. And it's a melee weapon attack. If you exceed the minion's hit points, you can then kill another minion within your weapon's reach. And if you exceed that minion's hit points with the damage, right, like you deal double the damage of a, of a minion's hit points, you kill another minion with that attack to give you that fantasy of like, you know, Aragorn swinging his sword around him and cutting down, you know, three goblins or orcs at once. Uh, similarly, ranged weapon does the same thing, but in a line when you fire it. So you can fire your crossbow through a bunch of minions at once, which is great. Like we, you know, a lot of people love that as the rogue. They deal sneak attack to a minion and then their, you know, their crossbow bolt keeps going yeah. or, or that sort of thing. I don't know if you know this, but Angelina Jolie, I think is a scientist and she came up with a movie where you can curve bullets. I don't know if you've looked into that. Oh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yes. So lots and lots of debate about like, well, why can't I just shoot anything within range? Right. And that sort of thing. And it's like, listen, you already, we already uh, have a lot of value in a ranged attack, right? You're already safe for attacking that. So that's why it's not as good as using a, you know, a sword or a halberd. Um, so because uh, you've, you've got plenty of distance between you and your enemies. Yeah. So sorry, Angelina Jolie, no curving of the, the crossbow bolt. I'm, I'm not going to tell her. Yeah. Um, I, I had a question. Yeah. I had a question. Uh, so in fourth edition, there was this sort of implicit contract that, you didn't hide things. The players yes. knew everything. So the players sort of knew when there were the minions on the table and they would adjust their tactics accordingly. Some of what you're describing here, especially the shooting in a straight line, yeah. sort of begs for that implicit understanding that these are minions. So I'm going to line up to make sure I get that shot. Yep. Did you think about that at all and like play testing and how to go? Yeah, so we did. Um, uh, we thought about that a lot and it's something that came up in play testing. And ultimately, 
our advice is let the players know they're going to have more fun with the minions if they know what they're up against. Right. And it's going to be more satisfying for them to cut these things down. Um, if that's the case now, the, the difference is many GMs like the shock moment of like, look, there's 30 skeletons here and Oh my God, 30 skeletons. What are we going to do? Right. Um, and so my real recommendation is that you end a session with them staring down 50 <laughs> skeletons. And then when they come back to start the next session, you say, okay, these skeletons are minions and here's how minions work. Um, so that you let them sweat it for a week. You have that dramatic moment that, uh, that a lot of us want, but yeah, I think it is best in this case to, uh, to let people know at least the first time they're facing minions. And then the next time they're facing down a room of, you know, like 20 different things, maybe they'll figure it out. Uh, or, or maybe it's 20 low-level goblins that aren't minions, you know, and, and you want to have different tactics then. Um, but I, I, my advice is generally to to let the people know, hey, it's minion time, which seems to be how most minion systems work, right? It, we did some research for this, and it's like, well, yeah, if you're, you know, if you're running Fantasy Flight, your groups of stormtroopers, the way you group them and everything on the map makes it abundantly clear that they are minions. Um, if you're running 13th Age, again, it becomes abundantly clear that these goblins all in a group are minions. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, that's similarly, yeah. we wanted to let people know, except that you're not in a group, they can be spread all over the map. I always want to, as a DM, make it a surprise, but... I've always seen that it's better when it's not a surprise and you tell folks uh, and it's fine to maybe set the scene and not tell people, but as, as soon as initiative is rolled, it, it really does work better to, to advertise them because that tactical choice otherwise ends up being really disappointing. You yeah. Know, you know, what is a minion? What isn't you, you make smarter tactical choices. This makes me think of a, something related, which is in, you did a stream recently where you shared some of the logic behind minions yeah. and in it, you created a chain devil minion. <laughs> yes. And uh, I was speaking to this guy called Mike Shea and, and he was like, chain devils, minions. Like what's next? Is there a pit fiend minion? Can anything be a minion? <laughs> like at some point should things not be minions? Are they too powerful to be a minion or should everything have a minion counterpart? Yeah, that's a great question, right? And in the comments for that video, there are people talking about Tarasque minions and Orcus minions, and right. I think they're all Mike Shea sock puppet accounts. Yeah. Um, but uh, they, uh, it, it, and and granted, right. Uh, one reason I picked the Chain Devil um, is because I, I think that it can be done with certain more powerful creatures, right? Um, I think you could have giant minions, um, uh, and sort of the prevailing wins in in the opinions of our playtesters and what i think um which again everybody's gonna have a different opinion about this is that like it's cool to have fire giant minions but a fire giant minion should be like a higher challenge rating minion right that if you're cutting down fire giants um like your hellboy and hellboy 2 fighting those big golden things um you should probably be in like the third or probably fourth tier of the game because then it feels like something you should do it's not something you should necessarily be doing at level eight when you might first face fire giants right and so it's figuring that out about like where is it appropriate for this to happen i do think there's some creatures that maybe uh, we won't be providing a minion version of right like we're not going to provide a minion pit fiend mike shake and can rest <laughs> easy um 
but we you know the tools are there if you want to minionize a pit fiend for whatever reason um again we're not going to minionize the tarasque we're not going to minionize uh orcus or, or anything like that um because i do think uh we want we would want those creatures to be the action-oriented thing right the boss monster but i do think a action-oriented pit fiend with a bunch of chain devil minions that's awesome, right? Like that's an encounter I, I'm getting down with and, and I'm going to get behind. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I did pick the chain devil because it is one of those like stronger devils, right? But, um, uh, and, and I think it would be cool to fight a bunch of chain devils, right? Like one of the things about the legions of hell is that there are legions of them and we never see that in D&D because- It's true. Like, only uh, even devils. a bunch of imps is too hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I like that about the fourth edition uh, minion rules that that it, it did capture that feeling of there should be situations when you're up against hordes, and that's regardless of your level. It, it always makes sense to have hordes of goblins, but it also mm-hmm. makes sense to have hordes of devils thematically. But but then you also want to be really cool as adventurers and mow them down. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting. yeah exactly right. Like I, one of the things about descent into a furnace is like you should have to cut your way through a devil battlefield at some point, but you can't because you would die. You would die if that was the case. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. 5e design. Yeah. Story-wise, narratively, you know, minions in stories um, you know, are there to be killed. Mm-hmm. But if you don't give them enough power in a game, they can just as easily be ignored because what, what's the problem with the big boss fight, right? It's no matter how many l- lieutenants you give, give the big boss, the characters go right to them, defeat them, and then there's just everyone else to clean up. Yep. So how do you handle that making minions uh, in, in terms of like a big boss fight? How do you make them dangerous enough to warrant the cinematic thing of, deal with the minions first and then go after the boss. So there's a couple of different things that we do. The, the sort of the broad thing is we have minions have strength in numbers, right? And so minions often uh, always have a trait that makes them annoying when there are a lot of them. Um, so you want to at least winnow them down until there's like two or three left. <laughs> uh, and that's things like, um, you know, the zombie minions, if they surround you, um, you start your turn within more than, five feet of more than three of them uh your speed is reduced by five feet for each minion that is there and if you're reduced to zero you're restrained right this idea of like zombies piling on you as the necromancer stands back and is chanting and casting you know grave bolts and things like that um and that so there's that right it's like we want minions to be more than uh damage dealers we want them to impose these status conditions that are on people uh, the the other part of that, if we drill down, there are minions that have not yet been seen that are in the book that enhance the power of creatures, right? Of of non minion creatures, and so it's like, okay, these cultist minions make it so that hey, uh, this uh, you know they they pick a patron, and the creature they designate as their patron gets. Uh, plus one to AC for each minion around, right? So, hey, it's impossible to to hit this guy until we deal with these minions or, or that kind of thing. I don't. That's not an actual mechanic, so don't quote me on that. 
but they do things like they can, you know, absorb some of the damage that they're taking. They empower that person to have really powerful attacks, um, you know, or, or, or hit more often, or the DC of their spells increases for you to save against. Um, and so uh, those sorts of things are also things we'll see minions doing, and those are made specifically to be paired with boss monsters and uh, to have more fun. Um, oh, that's that awesome. Mm-hmm. And minions also have a group attack, right? Can you talk a bit about how that works and the concept behind uh, you, you, you'd rather the DM not make tons and tons of attack rolls and they're not rolling damage and how's that all working through a group attack? Yeah, so that's the thing, right? Um, for group attacks, uh, essentially one minion, when they make an attack, they have a special attack, which is usually their main attack called a group attack. And it's like, you know, the, the spear that the orc is using. When an orc minion uses their spear attack, any other creature within range, and right, a spear can be thrown and it can be stabbed, uh, of the target can join in. Up to five other minions, up to five minions total can join in. And what that does is uh, you make one attack and the attack gets the attack bonus um, an attack bonus equal to the number of minions joined in the attack. So if it's five uh, orc minions making an attack, it gets an extra plus five on top of it. Uh, and if it hits, if that attack hits, it deals damage then uh, equal to five times that attack. And again, minion group attacks normally have like a fifth of the damage of the creature of the challenge rating. So if you get hit, it's not devastating. We really played around with that and tweaked those numbers a lot in testing to figure out what the best thing was. And lo and behold, it was like, oh, okay, it's actually just a fifth because a minion is supposed to be a fifth of a creature. Uh, and I at first was like, no, it's half because they're going to miss half the time. And you, you know, and uh, I was wrong. Um, and so uh, that's a, a, a big thing that then it, uh, and minions deal static damage. And that static damage means that you as the GM don't have to roll. And the reason we did that was, um, minions were really slowing down combat at the table. And this even happened to me in fourth edition. If I ever wanted to run 20 minions at a time, it was like, cool. Now the minions go, all right, well, I'm still rolling 20 attacks and 40 minions dealt static damage, right? You, for the same reason they wanted to speed up combat, but 20 attack rolls is 20 rolls. No way about uh, around that. And so this makes it faster because 20 rolls becomes four rolls, right? Um, and it's advantageous for the GM to do it because it's like, hey, it's more likely that this one roll will hit if, five, if it gets a plus five bonus than five individual rolls. Um, I like so. that it also encourages the DM to pick common targets. So like move all the zombies adjacent to one character because one of the things i struggled with in 4e with my minions is you sort of wanted to spread them out Mm -hmm. you know or not have them clump up and and but that led to a slog right to slowing things down and so this is making you kind of know put them all together by the fighter and wail on the fighter and then send a group over to deal with the wizard and, and so you're clumping them deliberately which then also makes them more fun to attack and tear apart Exactly, right? And a lot of minions have that trait, like the zombie minions surrounding you, the uh, goblins, they automatically can deal some damage if you start your turn next to them and fail a save. Um, and so it's one of those things where it's like we're encouraging the, the GM to group up minions around the players so that they can then use their group attacks. Um, and then the, the players can use their overkill attacks to kill all of the minions, which is fun. What were the the cold zombies that had the in Corey that had minion that dealt just a aura. chill chill touch yes. mm-hmm. chill touch zombie yeah. those are amazing those are so broken you know when you're just getting a chill just a just a chill touch from your bro 
and then so, it exploded. Yeah. <laughs> so, so for the so for the people out there who don't do a lot of D and D design, what was the time frame on you starting with this idea of minions till to its final in, incarnation? What what did that process look like? How long did it take? So we probably cranked on minions for on and off with our testers. Uh, I think we did nine different versions before we got to the version that ended up in the Flea Mortals preview packet. And I think that was over the course of about six months okay. wow. on and off testing and, and doing stuff with the minions. So yeah, the, the initial incarnation of minions was very different. And I sort of, when I sat down, I knew I didn't want to do hit points and I knew I wanted to get this idea of overkill attacks in there to speed things up. But I think like the group attack evolved and the, you know, um, um, some of these different things. And really, it really was like about getting the math right. Um, once we knew we we're like, we want to do these things, but we don't know if they're going to work. Right. It was just like, and one of the things that I was really doing each round was like, okay, minions deal less damage and less damage and less damage until we finally got to where we are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. It's super hard to design around monsters in part because of the CR system. Yeah. <laughs> Designers who work with monsters out there know what we're talking about, but it, it is it is a difficult system because it's not directly tied to the level of the characters. And so you, how to make it work is hard. Uh, that was a big thing we discussed changing for Flea Mortals uh, that we did not do was like, should we try to change CR? But then it makes our book less compatible, right? Mm-hmm. Because if our goblin is a CR1, but the monster manual goblin is cr one fourth well then what does that mean right yeah yeah um when these minions and the and the ideas you've shared and looking at things like the chain devil minion uh the zombie minion that are in the free preview um it i feel like like almost like a dm needs a little bit of a training manual (laughs) to understand how to use them properly and mm-hmm. one of the stretch goals you unlocked was layers. Might we see some of the layers in the book that will maybe showcase that and teach DMs how to use minions? Is that a thing you're thinking? Yeah. Through? So the every action-oriented creature in the book will get a layer, right, as a result of, of that stretch goal. And so those layers will have other creatures in them, including minions, and you'll probably see um i would say right like we know there's a goblin action-oriented goblin queen um and so that will likely be the layer where it's like learn how to do minions here right um and so uh so yeah so you'll probably see a lot of the concepts introduced in these layers uh as well to to help people you know do the stuff so yeah we're on the hook for like 20 ish layers right now so this book's never coming out uh and uh you heard it here folks no i kid i kid no it is uh honestly a a lot of the book is already you know we already have rough drafts of many many of the creatures that are going to be in this book so it's exciting it's a big undertaking monster books and two million (laughs) dollar kickstarter monster books are even more of a uh, of an ordeal so i tip my hat to you because you're going to be a busy little intro caso for the next several months yeah. thank Shana. thank god we hired hannah yes. <laughs> there's no way uh with this in arcadia yeah i wish you had uh, called me and told me sean about monster books would have been yeah. great uh, let your old pal james in on the info i know? just twirled my mustache and said someone else will pay now <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> actually how design happens there's a pool of suffering that collectively <laughs> permeates the world and from that design springs forth so that's right you can't that's cut right. it off it's, <laughs> it's true suffering for 10 cents a word it's mm-hmm. uh, yeah how that's do you freelancer's life <laughs> when you're creating this in flea mortals how are you saying like what what causes you to say okay monster x we're making uh you know goblins okay it should have a minion and a companion and a retainer or it should just be itself like what is causing that so uh essentially we we came up with there's sort of three different types of um entry in the book so there are bands which are things that um you encounter often in groups together a lot of them are humanoids things like goblins gnolls humans um uh giants uh that kind of thing right like those are our bands um and then we have monster entries which are monsters that you could encounter in many different types of places but uh they not normally encountered in a band things like um treants uh, things like uh, uh, griffins or hellhounds or, or that sort of thing, right? And then we have environments. Um, and the environments are like, hey, these creatures basically stick to this one environment. And those are all original creatures uh, that we're going to find in those. And those environments aren't biomes, um, or, or some of them are, right? Like we do have a desert or an Arctic environment. But then we also have things like graveyard or um you know uh ruined keep or uh evil temple right like places where adventures typically happen and and battles um typically happen and those are creatures that are not necessarily central to a, an adventure there but you might encounter on like a random encounter chart or that sort of thing um right those are the creatures that you often fight once in a campaign <laughs> uh you know like how many times are our adventurers fighting more than one purple worm in the course of a campaign right that that kind of thing um uh and so we've got lots of um uh those uh, so across those we have sort of different criteria so within bands we look at the bands and we say, okay, how often do people use something like Knowles, right? And we make a sort of educated guess and we say, okay, we should then, based on that, we should have X number of Knoll stat blocks. What are the quintessential Knoll stat blocks we have to have? Well, you know, a Knoll's really got to have a skirmisher. That feels like a Knoll thing to move around and do that. Okay, cool. Knoll's do gnolls have an ambusher, right? And it's, it's, that is the conversation where we figure out the number of stat blocks that each entry is going to get based on sort of how often we think people are going to use them. And then we break down like what type, what roles should those stat blocks fill? And that's how we did our outline. It was just uh, Matt and I, and then a couple of members of the art team who play D and D like sitting there going like, okay, all right, let's let's talk about elves. Like how many probably a lot of elves, right? People use elves a lot. Um that sort of thing. So like our biggest band is humans because nothing seems to get used more often than that, right? And so humans we've got multiples in each role and and that kind of thing. So not in every role, but but in some roles. Uh, a lot of minions, a lot of different kinds of human minions and and that sort of thing. Um you know, and all that humans uh, goblins are they going to all be reskinned too if you want them to be to to be something right. else? Wow. That's yeah. It's going to be a big book. It's going to be a big book with lots of stuff in it. It's going to be a big book with lots of stuff. There's certainly um, not every creature 
that we all know and love from the Monster Manual will be there or have like a even a you know a, an MCDM version of. Uh, it's sad. Uh, I I bear with you today to tell you that Matt Colville does not like the flump. Um, he is a yeah. flump hater. Mm. Um, and uh, and we had an argument like about it on stream. So uh, we're gonna have to edit that out. Like a Modron. I mean, that's just wow. he hates Modrons too. Hates yeah. them. Yeah. Nothing, nothing silly. Well, you know, I have to have projects of people to convert. So it'll just go on. He's on my list now. People to yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, I, I, it's funny. He loves a shambling man, though. You know what I mean? Like, loves a I shambling man, which I think is a fairly silly creature in its own way. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think one of the things, and this is not necessarily a bad point, right? Is like, well, flumps are good creatures. We shouldn't want to kill them. And a book of monsters is generally a book of things to fight and kill, uh, which is fair enough, right? But I do think Flump Retainer could be pretty cool. Oh, just yeah. saying. Flump Companion. I mean, flump yeah. Companion. Yeah. Oh, when that great. Flump goes into a rampage, you know, they're just farting up a storm. So never lose control of your Flump. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're, we're, we're expecting announcement on the next Kickstarter Flea Flumps <laughs> any day now. Any day now. It's true. All right. We have time for one more question for James Teos. Is there anything you want to hit him with before we take off? Uh, well, I, I'd love to just hear every time I've seen some of these examples, I've loved them. So can you give me any other, like something that you've seen come across your desk that's been created. That's a cool, like a minion group attack or trait, or even something that isn't a minion that just had a really neat concept behind it. Yeah, so I'm opening up my uh, my documents here because I actually have a specific example that I would like to go to, um, and I want to make sure that I get it right. So the uh, the author of this um, is a, a pretty good designer. Um, let's see here. Do, 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 do. Okay, so uh, so uh, we have some uh, some pretty cool minions um, in the book, and I, you know, we were talking about hellish minions and how we should have some. Um, and so there's a hellhound minion that uh, that is in this book. I don't know. Uh, uh, do you know the the designer of this one, um, uh, Sean? Have you ever heard of this guy, uh, Teos Abadia? Never heard. Uh, of him. You ever have you, ever, you ever heard of this individual? No, um, God, now I'm embarrassed. Sounds now like I'm a made up name. <laughs> Uh, so one of the things that I really, really love about this is, um, that, uh, essentially, um, you can be, if you are next to, uh, these, uh, hellhound minions, right? Um, and whenever we see art of a hellhound, what is it? It's like this dog made of like magma and obsidian, and you can see like cracks of fire coming through and, uh, it spits lava, right? It's got like lava drool coming out of its mouth. So if you are just near a hellhound minion, you take fire damage, right? So now we're, we're populating the field with them. We can finally have a pack of hellhound minions and it's overwhelming heat as you take fire damage from starting near all of these hellhound uh, pups, um, which is of course the name of our hellhound minion. Um, and then the other thing that I, I really, really like about the hellhound minion is, so they have a group attack um, uh, where they bite you uh, and you got to make a constitution saving throw in your bit or be lit on fire. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it sort of perfectly encapsulates um, what I always want to do with hellhounds 
which is have a pack of them, like this pack of roving hellhounds that chases people down. But that's never like hellhounds have a fire breath and uh, you can only have so many of them because they're CR3, which adds up pretty fast, even for a high level party, right? If you're putting them together, this allows you to have like a pack of hellhounds that the players are running from and being chased down. They're feeling the heat as they're breathing down their neck. They're being lit on fire, right? Like this could be a really cool uh, uh, hellish encounter. Now, Teos, I know that was not a good preview for you because uh, <laughs> you're the one who, who worked on it. So another thing I'm going to talk about then is our troll minion. Um, so trolls have a minion. Um, and one of the things that we wanted to do was uh, we wanted trolls to regenerate, right? But we wanted to like ha- how and why. And so um, the author who is named Cassandra McDonald, um, who worked on this, um, she came up with this reason that trolls have this ridiculous metabolism. Um, And so trolls regenerate when they hit with a bite attack, right? It's this idea of like they bite some of your flesh and then immediately incorporate it into their own. Um, So that's, that's the main troll, right? And then it was like, all right, Cassandra, we love that. Here's, here's one for you. How do you make a minion work like that? (laughs) How do you make a troll minion work? How do you do that sort of thing? So the idea of a a troll minion is that um, essentially uh, they need to end their turn having dropped to zero hit points so the troll minion right if you hit them they drop down uh to zero but they're still up and if they bite you they go back to full hit points right is basically the idea so you need to like hit and then run when you are fighting troll minions because then you know they'll fall down if they don't get a chance to catch up to you and bite <laughs> nice awesome i like that a lot yeah thanks tricky yeah. stuff Awesome. Well, James, thank you so much for coming and sharing your latest news and your game design with us. Uh, if people want to find you out there on the interwebs, where can they do that? Uh, so people can find me over at twitter.com slash James Intricasso. Uh, and all the MCDM stuff is at, I think, uh, mcmproductions.com. You can often find me in the comments over at slyflourish.com. <laughs> yes you and many many other people Uh raging raging uh thank you to our listeners uh thank you to our patrons as well you can you can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash mmp teos what are you up to on the interweb find me at alphastream.org and you can find me on twitter at sean merwin you can also leave some comments on our youtube uh at who, who is it that hosts us? Misdirected Mark, yes. The Misdirected Mark uh, YouTube channels. So, Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. Teos and James, what are we going to do now? Go kill some minions. Until they get back up because they bit you. That's right. <laughs>